0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At
1: Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try
2: at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change, Austin Goolsby joins me. This is his third time on the podcast. Austin was uh, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Now he's the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for the Al Franken podcast. He's also the Robert Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago School of Business. I think it's the Booth School of Business. We're in a uh, good news, bad news economy. The economy is growing at its fastest pace since 1984, economists tell us. That was 38 years ago. But inflation last year was 7.5%, the highest since 1982, which scientists tell us was 40 uh, years ago. Well, uh, we couldn't have anyone better than Austin Goolsbee to explain it all. He is what we call in uh, the podcast business, a good talker. Now, I'm taping this intro uh, the Thursday before we drop it on Sunday. I'm always a little nervous that something big is going to happen between when I record the monologue and we drop the podcast, but I'm hitting the road again this weekend for the only former U.S. Senator currently on tour tour. But boy, we've had a uh, big story this week. Donald Trump's accountants uh, for the last 10 years, Mazers USA, that's the name of the accounting firm, has cut ties with Trump and said that his financial statements uh, for all that time, for 10 years, are not reliable. I think that indicates that the Mazers are cooperating with the Manhattan uh, DA and the uh, New York State Attorney General, no doubt in some kind of uh, plea deal. Gee, what are the chances that Trump cooked his books or had them cooked? He could go to prison. Remember, lock her up, as Nelson might say. Ha ha. Speaking of Hillary, she received some classified documents on her phone, as you recall. Trump made a lot out of that. Well, it turns out he uh, flushed <laughs> official records uh, that by law had to be archived. He flushed them down the toilet. That sounds suspicious, but Trump uh, said that the White House residents uh, had run out of toilet paper. Toilet paper. I'm sorry, everybody. Will Donald Trump be our, our next president and then president for life? Or will he be in the slammer? But is it a good look for our country to have the sitting president's predecessor sent to the who's go? I I think that's a question that only Joe Biden will have to answer. We'll be right back with Austin Goolsby.
2: That's code audio at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code audio.
1: Do you ever feel like you're settling?
2: For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5,
1: Hey, Austin. Well, how are you? Thanks for having me back.
0: Well, you bet. It's your third time. And uh, so now I've decided to pronounce your name properly.
1: <laughs> How's that?
0: Austin Gouldsby.
1: Nice. nice. You know the whole story. Didn't I tell you the story? Gouldsby is Gouldsby with two E's. And it's because they've been in the U.S. for a long, long time, but they weren't literate. So every time they got their name taken by the census, their name would change to however the census taker wrote it down. So that's why it is completely phonetic because they just said, what is your name? Ghouls B. <laughs> They're like, all right, Ghoul's B. That's what it is.
0: G O O L S B E E. Yep. Everything should be phonetic. I, I totally damn agree. It. <laughs> Every I name totally should agree. be phonetic. Al Franken yep. is phonetic. Robert P. Gwynn. That's pretty phonetic. You're the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of, of Business. I take
1: special joy in that because Robert P. Gwynn was the guy that was the head of the Encyclopedia Britannica.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And, you know, back in junior high, that was my that was my, my old uh, projects, you You're know, to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. So I love that that's the uh, that's the guy who endowed it.
0: Austin was uh, former chair of the president's council of economic advisors under uh, president Obama. And what's that job like? What's that job? Is a lot of pressure or there can be like, eh?
1: uh, really <laughs> the job you run the president's own think tank. So it really depends what the president wants. So if the president is like president Obama who cares a lot about the CEA and wants them involved in, in a bunch of decisions, it's the greatest job in the world. And if you're CEA you chair for president who doesn't like economists, it's really, really lonely.
0: But I imagine under Trump, it was great. <laughs> that's
1: that's it was a great job. That's what,
0: guys. I've cried. I've watched it. I, I can't do Trump. I wish I could. But uh, I, I read everything you sent me. I want more.
1: Uh, <laughs> I've read all the briefing materials <laughs> and where are the appendices? Imagine an appendices and uh, I, I don't say I that. have
0: extensive notes. Yeah. Oh, oh Mr. President, stop working us so hard. Okay, so um Trump will probably run again. I want to ask you, I want I I decided to be Joe Rogan now and not know anything. So I think that'll get my listenership up.
1: Is, is that really playing to your strength though?
0: No thank you no thanks for the i the the ironic because i know stuff oh i'm so knowledgeable for example (laughs) (laughs) so trump is gonna if trump trump's gonna run again and he's gonna say you know black unemployment was at the lowest level ever in the you know after the three years my presidency before the pandemic and What do you say to that? Do you say that, well, it was, that's because you inherited Obama's economy?
1: Yeah, for the most part, uh, you know, it's kind of, he says that about the overall unemployment rate. And I will point out the overall unemployment, you know, remember that old book, it was on fire when I laid down on it. The unemployment rate was already among the lowest handoffs of all times. I think it was about four and a half percent when he took office. So he brought the unemployment rate down about a percent, and it's fine. It was the c- continued extension of what was the longest boom in history, and that's why the level got down as low as it was. The amount that he that it improved under him was quite modest. It's, it was okay. I'm not, I'm not faulting. You know, there was it was the continuation. It was the last 25 percent of the longest boom in American history, and then. By the time he left office, the unemployment rate was way high. It's it's overly facile, but I will say it's not totally unfair to say when Barack Obama came into office, he inherited the worst economic crisis since the Depression and turned it into the longest boom in American history. And when Donald (laughs) Trump took office, he inherited the longest boom in American history and turned it into the biggest economic crisis since the Depression.
0: Okay, and, and he'll say, well, it was a global pandemic. So you got to give him a little bit on that. Yes. That I and mishandled. Worse than, he here could say. Than, than anywhere else.
1: <laughs> I mean, just ask yourself, before there was a pandemic, okay, so we can talk about how they managed the pandemic, which I would argue was bad, and by historical and, and by cross-country comparisons was, was not handled well. But before the pandemic, just ask yourself, in this era of Trump economic growth, when they cut taxes $2 trillion for big corporations and promised it would pay for itself and promised it would increase the growth rate to 4%, promise that it would increase the average person's wages $4,000, what was the highest growth rate of all the years that Trump was in office before the pandemic? And the answer is a little less than 3% was his best year. And I would just observe that's the worst of any president ever that we have on record. Even Herbert Hoover had a year that was better than that. Uh, Every president had a faster growth year than the fastest year uh, under Donald Trump. So there's no evidence that the Trump policy machine, whatever you want to call it, There's no evidence that that was creating historic growth in the U S economy before the pandemic. And then they mismanaged the pandemic. So I kind of give, if we want to go back to evaluate the Trump years, I kind of think they deserve no quarter for that.
0: Now, uh, let me ask you just this data piece of data in the three years before Trump became president. How many jobs were created under the Obama administration? And in the three years before the pandemic, how many jobs were created in the Trump
1: administration?
0: Do you know those numbers at all? I
1: don't have the exact numbers, but it's definitely higher for the last (laughs) years under Obama than for the first years under Trump. And part of that is, in fairness, whenever that is pointed out, the Trump people will say, well, that's because... And here they admit that's because we come in at a point where we're almost already to the peak. So there aren't we can't create as many jobs because there just aren't enough people. Uh, But, of course, once they say that,
0: then you go like, okay, so the lowest unemployment rate among blacks.
1: Exactly. So stop saying you have the lowest unemployment. That just means you inherited the lowest unemployment.
0: How handy is fuck you in uh, arguments (laughs) between economists?
1: That, that's, it's usually uh, Usually, they would say, it, uh, you know, I think these standard errors are wrong.
0: <laughs> uh, that is fuck you and that's economics. That's what it is. That, is that, is I that I like, how that, dare you? I have,
1: I have some questions on the identification on this paper. That, that's. that's <laughs> those are fighting Why? words in my world.
0: I never. Oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> Well, those would be handy to know if I ever get.
1: You know. <laughs> You think they're being nice to you. They're like, oh, I have some questions about your identification. You're like, screw you, man.
0: <laughs> OK, now let's talk to what's happening now in terms of what people are thinking about, which is inflation and growth. So the numbers were not good again, right, in January?
1: Yeah, for, for inflation. The way we measure inflation in the U.S. is different than what, the, what they emphasize in most other countries where in most countries, they take the monthly, what happened to inflation this month. Mm -hmm. And then they say, and if that went for a year, here's what the annual inflation would be. And that's how we do it with with GDP growth, for example. And with the jobs numbers, we look at how many we added that month. With inflation, for some reason, I don't understand. We look at a trailing one-year average. So What happened this month turned out to be high, but the same as what it was the previous month. But it's just that that 12th month replaced a lower month before. So if you look at the last year, inflation looks like it went up. But actually, the inflation that's coming through the door remains disturbingly high, but didn't go up. It just stayed at that same high level.
0: I question your causality.
1: (laughs) I don't even know what I just said. (laughs) you You got to ask it right, Al. You got to say, I have some questions about the identification of that statement. And usually, before you sink the knife, you want to add. Maybe I'm confused, Ooh. but and then you and then you say and you 3. say it, it in fine.
0: a way where you're not, where it's yeah, clear no, that, exactly. That's it's not totally happening. disingenuous. Yeah. Maybe I'm
1: confused, <laughs> but I have some real questions with the identification on this problem.
0: Okay, uh, if you uh, are watching C-SPAN. And see, you see two economists, that's, have, that's, that's, that's a knife fight. When the economist face turns <laughs> red, you know, the spit's coming out of their mouth. How
1: dare you say that?
0: So, okay. So uh, what, what, uh, what do we do about this uh, inflation thing?
1: Yeah, well, you know, look, it is is back to our thing about inflation, that it really matters. Is the inflation, do you think it's coming from too much demand? And that it's fiscal stimulus, Washington spending, monetary stimulus, Fed keeping the interest rate low. Is that where the inflation came from? Or is the inflation coming from the supply chain is messed up, people can't spend money on services, so they're trying to buy physical goods, and the physical goods supply sector can't respond, so the price is going through the roof. And the economists, is not like it's totally sorted out. I mean, the economists are arguing amongst themselves about that question quite a lot. But the reason it matters is for the, well, what do we do about it? Um, Because if you think it's stimulus and you, you see a lot of people in the stock market arguing that this is the Fed's fault, the Fed's behind the curve, the Fed just needs to dramatically raise interest rates across the board multiple times this year, five, six, seven times. And that's how you can squelch down demand and get rid of inflation. And the other side kind of says, well, in the 1970s, we learned a bit of conventional wisdom. That is, if your inflation comes from supply shocks, then tightening will not solve that problem. And it's kind of trying to ratchet down demand to meet this lower capacity. Is not really going to get rid of inflation and is just going to lead to recession. So that's kind of where stagflation comes from, is we're crushing the economy by raising the interest rate a lot, leading to recession and unemployment, but it's not really fixing the inflation problem. So inflation remains high. So you're kind of looking and you're like, how could we have high unemployment and inflation so is that what
0: happened and that's
1: kind of what happened
0: in the in the 70s that's kind of what
1: happened yeah and it, it, at that time it was a different type of supply shock entirely of course we, we were getting embargoed and it, that it was, was the oil revolution we so so we got oil prices were a bigger share of the economy at oil was a bigger share of the economy at that time
0: so the oil shock caused the unemployment or, or-
1: unemployment and inflation and then the fed reacting to that says, oh, we see inflation, let's crank up the interest rate to try to get rid of the inflation.
0: And that was Volker. Okay, but
1: then that piles, the, that piles the unemployment rate even higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not really dealing with the inflation. In the moment right now, kind of why I'm sympathetic to the, is it sympathy? I think it's empathize something with the Fed is they're in a tough spot. Because what happened in this downturn looks nothing like any previous recession. Okay, so previous recessions go durable goods, a bunch of cyclical stuff like durable goods, washing machines, cars, things that consumers save up money to purchase once every blank years. That kind of demand goes way down in a recession, Housing demand way down. A bunch of cyclically sensitive sectors go down. And then the recovery is basically like trying to convince the money to get off the sidelines on that stuff. And the Fed does that by lowering the interest rate and try to make it more attractive. This time, all of that or much of that went up during the downturn. T- demand for TVs, up. Cars, way up. Housing, way up. So
0: you're saying the demand for cars went up during the pandemic or you yeah, know, the like-
1: pandemic lasts for one month. OK, so the downturn is not driven by a collapse of demand for cars, a collapse of demand for housing, collapse of demand for the things that are normally the forefront of the business cycle. The recession and collapse are caused by a bunch of things that are totally recession proof in normal downturns, which is going to the dentist, getting elective surgeries, going out to eat, a bunch of services which are normally not, they don't go up and down with the business cycle very much. That collapses because of the virus. We spend most of our money on services, and we can't go spend money on those services because they're shut down or because we're nervous about them, whatever, and so we turn to spending our money on exactly the durable goods that are normally the thing that goes down. So now you're the Fed trying to get rid of inflation. Number one, none of your old data is at all helpful on this because what the Fed's analysis has always been coming out of a business cycle of like, well, how fast can the business cycle come back? Well, how fast does car demand respond to the interest rate? How, fa- how fast does housing demand respond to the interest rate? No one has ever asked the question, how much does your visiting the dentist depend on what the interest rate is? And how much pent-up demand is there when nobody's been able to go to a restaurant for five months when the restaurants start to reopen? We don't know the answer to those questions. And those are critical answers for what the Fed should do. So I think the Fed, look, they put in place a series of emergency measures at the start of this downturn, like dropping the interest rate to zero, massive purchases of all these assets, what they call the expansion of the balance sheet. It is totally normal, I think, and a good idea to move back to, a more normal situation as the economy moves back to a more normal situation. But I just want people to acknowledge that there is a risk of going too far. And the risk is this, what in the business we call the tightening into the supply shock, that if you tighten into the supply shock, you could make the economy worse without actually reducing inflation that much.
0: Let's say that again, tightening into the supply shock. Tightening into shock. the
1: supply shock, they call explain it. Explain that, is explain that. Fed raises interest rates. So Fed sees inflation and says, ooh, mandate is get rid of inflation. This is ours to decide. It's kind of a central banker centric view of the world. Central bankers decide what the inflation rate should be. We see inflation, therefore it is our mistake. We're going to raise interest rates. But behind the scenes, if that inflation is coming from a supply shock, then tightening the rates will not necessarily get rid of the inflation. So you'll try to collapse demand for housing, for cars, for consumer durables, which you say, ooh, this is what's overheating the economy. But the thing that's overheating the economy is not necessarily that. It's coming from the supply chain problems. And so that's why I still hold out hope That as we get past the virus, if we can get past the virus, it becomes endemic or whatever, if it starts dropping and people are not afraid, I think that there will be a lot of people who can go back to work and we can go back to spending our money on services the way we used to before there was a pandemic. And as that happens, I think a bunch of the inflationary pressure is gonna ease.
0: So you're saying that people were buying cars and durable goods, but also The supply chain is about the parts, right? And it was about people not being able to show up for work, right?
1: In my diagnosis, the people not being able to go to work for services kind of crushed a whole bunch of those sides of the market.
0: But what about cars? I mean, uh, the supply chain that I understand are chips. Yeah. And I understand, and the chips, you use chips to make cars.
1: Right. So if you can't get chips, you can't make cars. Okay, so... What I think is happening is if you look at the ports, for example, shipping those parts in, they've actually never had as much business as they have right now. So there are some people who look and say, this can't really be a supply shock because output is up. This is too much demand. Look at how much demand there is. But the thing about that is there's too much demand for physical goods and there's not enough demand for services and that's what i think is a major component that's leading to the inflation and th- this is a little technical but i would point everyone when when we keep inflation we keep two t- two measures of inflation one is of consumer inflation like the cpi which which everyone quotes and that's the thing that, that consumer just consumer price out, the index the yeah But then we also keep the producer price index, which is a measure of inflation of things that businesses sell to other businesses. So not consumer goods, but like if I sell you steel, if I sell you windows, if I sell you whatever that you use in your business, that's a producer price. And the U.S. is not alone to measure producer prices. Everybody measures producer prices. In my world, producer price index inflation is very much about the supply chain. And the thing is producer price index inflation in the US is like 10% over the last year. And in Germany is like 15% and in China is 20%. And all of these places are seeing unprecedented producer price index inflation. And that tells me that there's a heavy global supply chain component to what's going on. And I think it's coming from this excess demand for physical goods. The supply chain just cannot deal with that. And I mean, in a microcosm, think about Peloton. It's kind of like there's a huge increase in demand for Peloton bicycles during the pandemic. Nobody can go to the gym. So the price goes up you might think peloton would just go build more factories so they can satisfy this demand but peloton doesn't want to build more factories because they knew perfectly well that as the pandemic goes down the demand for all these peloton bicycles is going to go away and go back to something like normal when people can go back to the gym so they don't build out the factory you see a big rise in inflation for consumer exercise equipment and now if we can shift back to going to the gym, some of those people, you're going to see the inflation rate slow down on physical goods. That's kind of what I what I think has happened in the wider economy.
0: Now, uh, this uh, trucker boycott or uh, in in Canada, that also is wreaking havoc.
1: Yeah, is it look? It's going to be a mess. It's like everything that happens just adds to the mess. So. You know we have a physical goods problem with satisfying the demand. And now we're going to block off one of the major throughways that we get spare parts from Canada, which is a ton of, of course, a ton of our trade and our supply chain is Canada, U.S., Mexico. So if you're going to block that, that's going to just lead to more supply chain problems. And then you add Russia's about to invade Ukraine driving the price of oil to extremely high levels. And that's going to raise the price of gasoline and fuel costs in the economy as a whole. That's very likely to make people feel even grumpier. You don't have to fault the administration if they feel like, man, we just cannot get a break here. And that's partly, like I say, because the economic timetable on this inflation is just totally not on the political timetable. And I feel bad for saying that. I feel bad for the folks in the White House because it means their life is going to be very unpleasant and tough for months because even if you believe that the inflation is going to go away or lessen as the supply chain gets fixed and as we shift back to more normal posture, that's still not going to happen for months. So they are going to be months of this every month. You know, ah, look at how high the inflation is. Look at this. Look at that. And people are going to be grumpy. Now, you, we don't want to make too much of inflation in that inflation is the downside, but we had record-setting job growth. We had the second highest economic growth rate in the last 55 years in 2021. Why are people so angry, upset, negative in their views about the economy when Yes, there are downsides like inflation, but the consumer confidence measures are at the levels that they were at the depths of the Great Recession, not when the GDP growth rate is blowing off the charts and you're creating a record number of jobs and and wages are rising like this. So that is also a puzzle of why people feel that way.
0: I think the pandemic has something to do with it. (laughs)
1: Uh, in terms
0: of people's mood and mental health. And this brings me actually to Build Back Better and the elements of it that people don't know about because all it's talked about in the news is the horse race and inside baseball. And is it 3.5 trillion? That was the first. Is it 1.5 trillion? What I really believe very strongly is that they should put these elements put them on the floor so people can see what they are.
1: Yeah, just let people see. You said that early, early on, and they they should have listened to that. Maybe it's just Monday morning quarterbacking.
0: But Well, not then. But,
1: yeah, it wasn't then.
0: When I did it uh, early.
1: For sure now, <laughs> they should have listened to that strategy because it turned from build bag better to build bag never or build bag later. The thing is, as you highlighted way back then, and it's still true today, Many of these subjects, like if you ask the American people, do you think there is a childcare problem slash crisis in this country? There's massive agreement that there's a childcare crisis. Of course, and everybody knows people who've had to give up their jobs because schools were closed and they couldn't find anyone to take care of the kids during the pandemic, and that before the pandemic. That's really hard. Finding viable childcare that you can afford is really hard, and paying for it is really hard. And so, if the government has a way to try to make that a more affordable expense, that can expand the supply side. This is the not, not to become a supply sider, but this is the Democrats' version of Supply side economics it says you know
0: the supply of the labor force. We have
1: not had immigration. Supply side economics says you want to expand the productive capacity of the economy. One of the great ways to do that is to expand female labor force participation. Make it easier for women to go back to work. And historically, and across countries, if you look at places where they Have affordable childcare where the government helps them to get that, labor force participation of women is well higher than it is in the United States. Which, if you're of a certain age, that still kind of blows your mind because the U.S. was always the leader in, well, women were going back to work and they were having careers. And if you compared U.S. women's labor force participation, it was the highest in the whole world and now every advanced country has higher labor force participation of women than the US has
0: this is a data point that i my audience has heard maybe before because i've said it a number of times but the average european country subsidizes childcare to the tune of $14,000 a year per child
1: 14,000
0: yes in the United States, it averages over because they don't do it. Five hundred bucks.
1: Five hundred, exactly. So the thing is, there's one thing, and it's perfectly valid to say, well, it would be nice to have this kind of subsidy. It would relieve you know constraints in our budget. It's a second thing to say, and that has benefits to the wider economy. That if you could increase labor force participation that expands the productive capacity of the economy and oh by the way that's exactly the problem that we're dealing with right now is labor force participation in these millions of people who disappeared from the workforce during the pandemic and trying to figure out is it because they got covid is it because they don't have childcare there was a group of people saying it was because of unemployment insurance then they got rid of the unemployment insurance, and the people didn't come back. But that—that—that that, that I just picked one component out of "Build Back Better." In your formulation, take it to the floor, explain what it is, and fine. Let's have a vote on it. If you think America doesn't want that, then they voted down. But I do think that the for sure the component parts, at least in the polling, was much more popular than the "Build Back Better." bill ever was because
0: because they didn't know what it was. They, they didn't just, know what they it no was. Idea. And
1: and the whole argument was just about stimulus. And like the ah, oh, is it three trillion, is it two trillion, five trillion of stimulus? But it re- it really wasn't about stimulus. That's not what it was about. It was about health care, education, childcare, and the what I call the human capital agenda, but the the how to upgrade people's wages and uh, upgrade, you know, the workforce and the standard of living.
0: Another piece of this universal pre-K, that in and of itself would be an enormous achievement because forgetting also what that does is let those parents, uh, whether it's the mom or dad doing the childcare, let those parents go to work uh, when their three and four-year-old is in school But also, the return on investment of early childhood education has been shown to be huge.
1: Huge, like 10 to 1. Like, if you bought Bitcoin in its earliest days or something, (laughs) your rate of return would not be as high as what the rate of return is on early education. (laughs) And the thing that's that's saddest about that is this is the weak spot of our democratic policy process, which is... Anything where there's a huge payoff, but the payoff is in the future and the cost is in the present, it just seems like we can't do that. Uh, we, we've we just had such a hard time passing stuff like that.
0: It's a so win-win. I mean, because parents of three- and four-year-olds would then have childcare in the form of school.
1: Yeah, and, and, and on top of the direct benefits – of you know the people make more and pay taxes for 50 years of their career for the rest of their lives more I'm t- I'm telling you like 10x pay for the cost of the program in net present value terms in addition to that it helps the parents to be able to go to work i mean it's just so frustrating
0: i, I know this pretty well uh, in terms of what the benefits are, in terms of the return on investment. So uh, a, a kid has early childhood education is much less likely to be left back a grade mm-hmm. in school. The girls are much less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Their boys and girls are more likely to graduate high school, more likely to go to college, more likely to get a good job, much less likely to go to prison. Holy mackerel. How can you not do that? And other countries do that. <laughs> they do
1: that. <laughs> Everybody, look, it, like it literally, th- th- there's a Nobel Prize winner here at the University of Chicago, Jim Hackman, who has done extensive work about early education, the importance of early education, how much it pays off. And, and I'm telling you, just on naked cost-benefit grounds, not even counting the other benefits, just the cost to the government is lower. As you know, it costs more to keep someone in jail than to send them to Harvard for the year. And so if you reduce crime rates-
0: And your SATs don't have to be
1: (laughs) (laughs) the, the People are test optional now. So if you reduce crime rates, reduce high school dropout rates, reduce all of the negatives and enhance the probability of those positives- it has huge benefits to the parents and to the people themselves and to the government. It just, it really doesn't make sense not to do this.
0: And we should be, we should be hearing this on the floor of the Senate.
1: Yes, What I'm saying, let's debate the merits of these policies. That was your, that was your insight months and months ago. Explain what the policies are and let's debate the merits. And I think you know, at least in the polling, the American people are absolutely heavily and in big majorities in favor of making these kind of investments. I consider that just a garden variety investment in people that you're paying money now to have a big payoff on average down the road.
0: We're going to take a uh, quick break. We'll be back with Austin Gouldsman.
2: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, You as cashback. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
1: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery
2: with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byte Clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at bite.com. That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Let me ask you about the pay-for side of this. And I just am disturbed by Senator Cinema, who seems to be loath to raise taxes on high income people, when my read of the American people is a huge percentage of the American people want to see that. I think the only people who don't are like corporate people who, uh and the corporations love the corporate tax cut that they got under uh, Trump, and also... Remember, they were going to uh, use that to create jobs, but they yes. actually just bought their own <laughs> yeah, stock back? Of
1: course. Of course. <laughs> but the, the, but the, that was completely, not only was it predictable, we predicted it. <laughs> yes. <that's... laughs> the, they said it was going to pay for itself. They said it was going to raise the average wage $4,000. They said that it was going to create jobs. And what happened once again was that most of the money got paid out in dividends, share repurchases, higher executive compensation. They brought back a bunch of money that was overseas and did not hire anyone with it. It was overwhelmingly paid out to the shareholders, which that wasn't what they sold it as. If they had said, yes, we need a $2 trillion tax cut for high income people, and big corporations, so that shareholders can receive bigger than normal dividends this year, no one would have voted for it. The reason that they that, that had support by people on the margin was this view that it was going to stimulate growth and benefit everyone. That tax cut that, that Donald Trump enacted remains to this day the most unpopular tax cut in the history of American polling. Normally tax cuts are very popular. That one remains underwater, the most unpopular ever. And the reason is because people see what it did, which is everything the critics predicted. It was a windfall handout to people who already were having record incomes. They had had record income growth and had the corporate profit share was the highest ever, uh, and then they cut their taxes, $2 trillion. So I guess I would say to Senator Cinema, please go look at the research. Okay, there's a great deal of economic research on the question, how much does it affect the wider economy if you raise high income people's tax rates? And there's just evidence on the ground from our experience of the last several years, which is Donald Trump cut the taxes significantly for exactly these groups. And if that's a huge thing, then the growth rate should have skyrocketed. And we're back to square one. It didn't. The fastest growth rate under the Trump economy was slower than in any president in American history that we have data on. So there, th- this argument that if we put the tax rates back to something not even as high as they were before, but if we just move them back closer to what they were before Donald Trump was there, that that would have a huge negative effect that's just not backed up in the data and it's not backed up by our, by our experience. So that's- and, and by public opinion. And by public opinion. And by public opinion. S- separate from the facts, everyone knows that. If you ask, should we raise, (laughs) should we make these investments and pay for it by taxes on the top 1%, that's opposed by like 1% of people. (laughs) And and it's understandable why it's very popular. I mean, I exaggerate that that it's just 1%. But if what they were saying was, we should just raise taxes and throw the money away, I could see why a bunch of people would say, well, I don't want to do that. But when asked, should we use the money to make these investments and fill in infrastructure, health care, child education, put it in any of those categories, there's huge support for doing that. Because when we've done that in the past, that has worked. That, that's where I think the growth comes from is investing in your people. It's not from just having the lowest tax rate you can have, you know, and, and I'll refer everybody to these islands like Vanuatu, where I think they don't have any taxation on any kind of income. But um,
0: What is Vanuatu?
1: It's just an island nation out in the Pacific. It's a tax haven, uh, you know, like these uh, tax havens. And so my question is, if you believe – that it's taxes as opposed to the investment in people then why isn't silicon valley on vanuatu why is it in california where taxes are high there's regulation there always have been and the answer is companies don't go to silicon valley because it's cheap they go there because they can't afford not to go there because there's a massively invested great workforce there. There's a very high productivity. And it's not cheap to create that productivity. You got to invest in education. You got to invest in K through 12. You got to invest in pre-K. You got to invest in higher education. And you got to invest in infrastructure. So if you raise taxes on high-income people to make investments, I think everybody understands that that can make sense. And the onus is on us to prove that these are valid investments. um, But we should welcome that. We should welcome the opportunity to show, look, look, here's what it's for. Here's what pre-K money is for. Here's the evidence that it works. So now let's do it. Um, And lumping all of that together and saying this is stimulus and therefore let's oppose the expansion of government. It kind of gave the Republicans a free pass to, to block things that, that would have been really good for us.
0: And look at the great things that, that Silicon Valley does. I mean, I read about this uh, company where they, in Silicon Valley, they created this new technology where you can do like hundreds of lab tests on just a drop of blood.
1: <laughs> I see where this is going.
0: <laughs> and I I put a lot of money into that. <laughs> because she's against raising the corporate tax level too, right?
1: Yeah, she's opposed to raising corporate taxes and raising high income taxes on the grounds that she's nervous that that will hurt the economy. And so the thing is, that's why I say there are a lot of economists who've spent spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears analyzing what has happened in the many times that we have raised and lowered taxes on high-income people. And they aren't magic beanstalk beans that it's like, oh, we'll give tax cuts to these really, really rich people and they will grow everyone's economy and, and will all benefit. For the most part, what happens is exactly what you would think would happen. You lose revenue. You cut taxes. It doesn't pay for itself. You lose revenue. You look at what we did under Trump, and the vast majority of the $2 trillion ended up just being a windfall getting handed out to corporations and not getting them to increase their investment rate. Investment rates weren't any higher than they were before the tax cut. It led to Big differences in share repurchases and dividend payouts.
0: So what should we? What should we do? What would you do if you ha- were at the Fed? What would you do if you were the president in terms of uh, addressing this inflation?
1: I mean, partly, like I say, I think one answer is sit and wait and figure out: is this from supply or demand? Is it fading, or is it, or is it going to be there? That's not. A really a viable strategy in the current climate for either the Fed or the the executive branch because people are too upset. I think for the Fed, if you were at the Fed, as I say, I think it's natural to raise rates, to phase down taper all, all these asset purchases they're making, and to move back to something like a normal stance on monetary policy that existed before the pandemic started. Because many of the conditions are back close to what they were before the pandemic started. So, it makes sense to me that we would move back to something normal. But before you go more than normal, let's call, it, before you tighten so much, I I do think you want to wait and see if this component of the supply chain is going to work itself out. If you're in the executive branch, it's much more limited what you can do. But I do think that in the same way that during the pandemic itself, when they passed the CARES Act and later the American Rescue Plan, but like in the CARES Act, people were nervous. They changed the rules on telemedicine because there were a bunch of people who couldn't go to the doctor because the virus is spreading everywhere, but they still had medical conditions. And it had been a long-standing issue for Republicans that they wanted to get rid of some of those regulations. And... Democrats and Republicans together made it easier for you to see doctors over the internet. That's a tiny example of what I would like to see them do more of. Okay, So I think you could get some Republicans on board with the idea that there are regulatory impediments to the supply chain that we can address. Now, part of that they did with the ports, and you saw Biden go down and try to Work with them, convince them to change the work rules and, and work more hours, and allow stacking of the of the containers uh, up to three instead of two or something. And it helped. You you saw the backlogs in the ports go down. I think anything the administration can do via executive order on regulatory matters to ease supply chain blockages would absolutely be in order. And then the second, I really believe that a large component of this is coming from the fact that we can't spend money on services, which means we've got to get control of the virus. Even though it seems to have nothing to do with the economy, if you could get people feeling safer about the virus, I think that naturally turns back into something more normal on the economy. I will fault, I mean, I got to be fair, I fault the administration. I thought the thing with testing and not having the tests, and my friend Gensaki kind of making fun of the idea that they would send tests to everybody, that was a mistake. They got overconfident because the numbers were going down. They shouldn't have. They should have been investing in testing home testing capacity right out of the gate and done as much as possible. I think they've tried to catch up on that. The ramping up production of the various treatments, I don't know if they're the monoclonal blah, 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 or the or, or Anybody, these new pills, yeah. but those are constrained. They're, they're, they're rationed and constrained. I think the same amazing effort that they played in expanding production of the vaccines in the first half of 2021, it would behoove them to do that for treatments into first half of 2022. And if they did, it, I mean, it seems weird that I'm talking about health things, but I really think that those health things are economic policy at this point. Uh,
0: absolutely. Well, the, the thing is, is the, the sin of all this is the uh, anti-vax misinformation and disinformation because it's killing people. Yes. You're 97 times less likely to die if you've been hospitalized, if you've been boosted, been vaccinated yeah. and boosted than someone who hasn't been vaccinated.
1: You got to have a very strange conspiracy view of the world where all of the most powerful, richest, most influential people, the people who are at the center of the conspiracies, they all rushed out to get the vaccine. Those are the first people in line to get the vaccine. So what's the probability that this is a conspiracy to inject you with a transponder chip that Bill Gates will read if bill gates is the first guy out there trying to get it you know what i mean so well,
0: it's but it's, it's he's reading the data from the chip there really isn't a privacy problem for him you know trump got vaccinated he he should have done it on tv obviously but i think he just wanted as many people as possible to die uh, under biden
1: i i don't know that's a horror that's an awful way to look at it i hope that's not true um, well, how, how can I, you look give, at anything I about this some, guy? I give some credit to the former president that at his rally, he got up and said something to the effect of, look, I got vaccinated and you should get vaccinated. Then they got booed by his own people. And it was, I understand it. he never mentioned it again.
0: Well, then he said, whatever, you know, the, you know, yeah, whatever. <laughs>
1: but, you know, I, I wish he would say it more. I'll give him some credit for, I mean, he knew that that wasn't going to be popular w- when he when he said it. I wish that anybody who well he, in was that asked, world, he was asked
0: he was asked. I think it was Bill O'Reilly or something. He was asked, and you know he's got to tell the truth. I mean that's his his thing.
1: <laughs> that's his brand. <laughs> yeah, <That's
0: his> <laughs> truth
1: teller extraordinaire. Look, the thing is, um, for all of our pessimism, and for all of our just shaking our head of oh god how could this have happened i remain pretty optimistic on two grounds okay i can't One, want to hear this i do think if we could move to the endemic phase of the pandemic where this is getting sick but it's not debilitating and we don't have to close down and people are not afraid to go back to doing what they were doing this is not like a normal comeback from a recovery where you're trying to convince people to go out and spend the money the way they did before the pandemic. People are primed. They're ready. They want to go to Disneyland. They want to go to the restaurants. All we got to do is have some improvement in the virus. And I and I kind of think that it will end up being fine. We Yes, we're still going to have to deal with, with annoyances like... Gasoline costs are really high and we have inflation. But fundamentally, if we can go for a year with high growth, high wages, and high job creation, I think people are going to feel better. And then the second is I actually think Trump is not going to get the traction that he had before. That fundamentally, even if he does run again, I kind of think that they're not going to buy into it. There are going to be some Republicans who say, wait a minute, this guy lost. And you know how they're the estimation they hold Joe Biden in. So they're going to say, this is the guy who lost to Joe Biden. How are we going to nominate him again? And in a way, now the critique of Trump becomes the Trump critique of Hillary Clinton. You remember in 2016, his thing was, you were there. And you didn't fix it, so let's try something different. And I kind of think Trump can no longer say that. Like whatever he says, it'd be like, well, you were there for four years and you didn't fix whatever it was. And you know, you said you were a deal maker. You said you were gonna, you know, get rid of the national debt. You said you were gonna do all of these things, and in the end, you you did the opposite. And the one legislative accomplishment that he had was massive tax cut for people just like himself.
0: I hope you're right. Of course, of course, but we've been so wrong about him so many times and look, the RNC, that ridiculous thing of saying uh, that January 6th was legitimate political discourse.
1: (laughs) Yes. What, But, but I mean, there was a, there was this time there was a lot of blowback in a way that it felt like a bunch of the things that Trump said when he was in office 2017 2018 which were totally over the line there was still this like curiosity value that it, that it, you know the media would cover it and say oh can you believe what Donald Trump said and then they just repeat what he said and I do think we got a little more sophisticated at immediately recognizing what bs it was
0: my my worry is he still has a hold of the republican party of the republican base And, and my my is that he gets the nomination and then because we haven't been able to pass this voting rights stuff that they they steal it i mean they're setting it up to steal it. they're putting people to administer the elections they're they're you know electing people who say the election was stolen
1: well, thanks for stomping on my dream, Al. You know, I, I, was, well, that, I, I mean, was I was I was talking myself into happy, happy town.
0: Well, and, I, I uh, just want if what
1: you're describing happens. And look, I think if Donald Trump were to take office again by hook or by crook, it's over. Um, yeah, I I kind of think now now we're now the democracy that we have known is is going to a different phase.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, we're hungry at best, like except it's Trump, (laughs) you know, Orban will look like, Oh, you know what? He's not so bad. Uh, Oh boy. Well, I don't want to end on that note.
1: No, look, but what I'm telling you is (laughs) a, if we get control of the virus, which we might be getting control of, despite our best efforts to screw it up, I think it's quite possible. If we get some control, the economy can go back to normal and people can be happy again and i still i still believe that uh, it, t- it takes us a little time but the um, the median voter in america gets on board they figure it out and they th- for whatever reason they it wasn't even a majority that was supporting trump but it was a large number and that number i believe has gone down and, and I think it went down with observation that people are casual, empirical economists themselves. And they look out the window and they're like, well, what have you, you know, Trump keeps saying what a great economic president he was, but growth would never over 3% even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic was a disaster and mishandled in every way. And, and there was chaos. That's the thing. If you put him back in the White House, there's going to be the same pig pen like chaos that just surrounds everything. You know, there is. Everywhere he goes, he brings this cloud of dirt that just sticks to everything.
0: I just, I'm such a pessimist about, I mean, it, you know, you're saying like it was the the growth was less and, you know, wasn't as high as even 3% in his best year. And do you think anybody, <laughs> any of these Trump people can even hear that? They can't hear that.
1: No, no, they can't hear that. You're right. But remember, even Herbert Hoover kept his base. I mean, he got 40% of the vote. He, he, he got the 40% of his I base. wonder what,
0: I, you know what? That's an interesting thing. I, I wonder if anyone has any footage of a Hoover rally in 32. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. must have, <laughs> you must have had rallies. <laughs> <laughs> I, would I would give anything. Oh, yeah, we so have different. some uh, footage from.
1: Hoover 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 you're like yes that's this is our guy you know yeah and, uh,
0: I, you know ele- election Eve big rally in 32 uh, just uh, you know 20,000 people showed up
1: <laughs> and do you think I mean I wonder from the January 6th commission or from just these other lawsuits I mean it certainly seems like some people from the previous administration, at very high levels, could be in serious legal jeopardy.
0: Well, yeah, there's that, and 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 just oh man, hoping for that, and there it's taking a little longer. I had uh, Jamie Raskin on, and I went, "When are we going to have the hearings?" I went, right. I went "The hearings," right. and he went, "Well, we thought it might be in March, but now it looks like May or something." Oh, ah, get him! On. I want to see this. I, you know, uh, we're all hoping that there's lots of smoking guns. And I kind of think there are. I mean, we've already seen. Also, the flushing the... uh, The flushing
1: the documents. Can I tell you, when (laughs) I was in the government, okay, so the Republicans took over at the midterm. I was in the first term of Obama. The Republicans take over at the midterm. Before the midterm, the White House counsel's office, the ethics office, come and tell everybody, hey, you know, we gave you the... We gave you the rules of record keeping and, and all of that. But just to reiterate, soon as the Republicans come in, they are going to investigate that you have been following the rules. So if go back and if there's any personal emails where there was any work that you did from the government, you make sure that these are in the National Archives. You forward that to your uh, to, to your official government email. I used to get hate mail Physical letters sent to me, you jerk! I saw you on TV. I hate your guts. I hope you die. You know this, and w- not only can we not throw it away, we have to file it, archive it for the national archives. Ah, correspondence from from upset uh, citizen. <laughs> the thought that Donald Trump is taking top secret materials, ripping them up and flushing them down the toilet, taking them with him to Florida and actively engaging in deception, taking the Secret Service's phone or other people's phones to try to make conversations that don't get recorded into the National Archives is an outrageous act. Unbelievable. People have been fined, even gone to jail for engaging in this kind of behavior and they passed. The Presidential Records Act, exactly because they feared Richard Nixon was going to destroy the tapes and try to cover up the crimes that he knew he had committed. And the Presidential Records Act is precisely to prevent the behavior that just happened. That's a good point. If you can get away with doing that, the Presidential Records Act was just repealed. With, with zero votes because that's what it's supposed to stop
0: well this has been fun thank you
1: we always have a good time al thanks for having me back
0: well i, I hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo Kottke, the great leo Kottke. i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast we'll talk again next week